of us who have professed faith in that saving work, our sins are gone, never to be held against us again. And for that, we are so grateful. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes alongside of us to comfort us, to guide us, to direct us, to give us power to do great and mighty things. Lord, among those things are that you've provided for us through your atonement are the healing of our bodies. Jesus, we have needs in this church this morning for people that need healing. God, we're so grateful to see Lori here this morning after her recent hospitalization. Lord, we're thankful that that ticker is working properly again. Thankful for the same thing for Randy, Lord. He's here this morning and heart's doing much better and we thank you for that. Lord, we have other people with different needs. We pray for Courtney Valdez down in Wichita. Dear Jesus, that you would touch her body. Been praying for Courtney for so long and Lord, she needs a profound touch of your hand upon her body. Thankful, Lord, to hear that that Dean Bennett has been released from the hospital as he recuperates from his stroke. And Lord, we just pray for your continued touch and strength upon him. Thankful for your touch upon Brenda this last week, Lord, as she recovers from that fall. And Lord, we pray that the tests will reveal that there is no tear in that rotator cuff. Lord, that she'll regain full range of motion without surgery. Thankful, Lord, that it was discovered that Cheryl Trailer does not have infection in her blood as they feared. Lord, we pray that you would give Cheryl the healing that she desires and the healing that she needs this morning. Lord, we have those that are still grieving in our congregation. We pray for Ron and Carol Peterson, Lord, as they have been away from us, Lord, mourning the loss of Carol's brother-in-law. And Lord, we pray again for the comfort of your Holy Spirit to be upon them. Continue to be with Tricia and, and her family, Lord, as they, they deal with Justin's loss. And Lord, we're just so grateful for the things that you see, we see you doing in, in Tricia and her kids' lives. And Lord, we know it's because of you. And we, we're just reminded, God, how impossible it would be to go through situations like they've gone through without knowing you. We're just so grateful for your mercy, grateful for your might. And dear Jesus, I know that there are other needs in this room this morning that need your touch. Lord, there are people here that need your provision, need your direction, need you to put back together that which the enemy has sought to tear apart. And so, God, we proclaim victory in the name of Jesus to every situation. You are greater. You are greater, Jesus, than the power that the enemy has over us. And so, Lord, while we may be in the world that he seems to be running rampant in, we know that for the child of God, there's victory. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Now be with us in the furtherance of this service today, and we will thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.
You may be seated. Hey, it's good to see you here this morning. Excited about the picnic this afternoon. If you weren't here earlier to hear Dana's announcement, the the annual picnic will be this afternoon at 5 o'clock at Light Park, the Green Shelter. Uh, Not to reiterate everything that Dana's already given us, but I know that there's been a number of you who have come in since she made that announcement, and uh, you know that we're going to have fried chicken. You can't say it any other way. It's fried chicken. And... uh, and pie. Speaking of pies, you know, it's impossible to keep a figure like mine with you folks bringing pies in. We've had two pies delivered to my house this week. Another one is waiting on me that I know of. And, uh, you know, thank you for that. They're great. They're wonderful. But don't take me so seriously. Evidently, Evidently, you like you folks like your pastor's fat. I mean, that's all I can, and I can't disappoint you, you know. So, thank you for the pies. Uh, they've been great, and we've enjoyed them. But uh, today, we are in part nine of our sermon series. <laughs> um, you know, I've spent the better part of eight weeks, the last eight weeks that I've preached anyway, bringing you sermons about rebuilding the church, or as Nehemiah was assigned to do in the book of Nehemiah, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. But today, I'm going to begin what I hope to be the last two messages of this series today and next Sunday with a statement. Are you ready for this? It's not about the wall. It's not about the wall we've been talking about for the last eight weeks. It's about the Word. It's about the worship. It's what takes place inside the walls that was important. And the reason that the walls needed to be rebuilt. You see, in spite of all of the devil's dirty efforts to prevent it from taking form, and in spite of all the opposition that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem encountered in rebuilding these walls, I'm going to take a big skip today. We finished up in chapter 3 last week, but I'm skipping all the way to chapter 7 and 8 today. In spite of all of that, the walls were completed in 52 days. What had seemed to be an impossible task, through God's people, through Nehemiah's ability to cast vision, the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem was completed in 52 days. Chapter 6 of Nehemiah, verse number 15 says, uh, where is it? There it is. The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Now, I realize that by Skipping all of those chapters to get over to the completion of the rebuilding of the wall, I've left out a lot of information. I've left out things like uh, the the particulars of the rebuilding of the wall and the significance of the the 12 gates that were inserted into the walls. But I'll I'll file those away for a future sermon series uh, because I want to move to chapter number 7 and 8 today. 
And there we're told how the people of Jerusalem got organized, how they were housed and fed during this rebuilding prog- uh, process. And they, then they all got involved in what I would call a big love offering. They, from, the, from the least of them to the greatest of them, they jump-started their spiritual life. And that's what rebuilding the walls was all about. Having, having the ability to regain the spiritual life that the people of Jerusalem and those that were still in Babylonian exile had lost as a result of the walls of Jerusalem being torn down, their city plummeted, and the people taken into exile. So today, the wall is finished, but now it's time for the real work to begin. And it's here that we begin to learn and to understand that God's real purpose for the wall needing to be rebuilt was so that his people could experience this spiritual renewal, or as we would call it today in modern terms, revival. Their spirits needed to be revived. Now, as as I read through this, I, I thank God that that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem that helped in this rebuilding process learned and understood that God's real purpose was not to build a monument. They didn't have a, a, a monument mentality. They didn't see the building of the wall as being the ultimate goal because they understood that what went on inside the walls after the walls had been rebuilt was what really mattered. And what's going to happen inside those walls is God's entire purpose in giving Nehemiah this vision of restoring the walls of Jerusalem. You see, once the wall is finished, the people began to worship God again. They began to worship, and, and, and they had revival. They, they had what I would call an old-fashioned, heaven-sent, sin-erasing, devil-chasing, window-shaking, soul-saving revival. How many of you would like to see that again in America? I would too. But you see, it was a revival that was based upon the Word of God. So it's not about the wall, it's about the Word, and it's about the worship that will go on inside those walls. And this morning I want to share with you what I see as being five elements of this worship that began after the completion of these walls. And the first thing that I want to say to you this morning is that their, their worship was rooted in a hunger for the Word of God. Go with me to chapter number 8. And I want to share with you initially just verse number 1. It says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. That's not the water gate that you might be thinking of, by the way. It was the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, quite literally, what they were saying to Ezra and to Nehemiah is, we want to hear what God has said. Now, that may seem like a strange request, but you have to understand the situation surrounding these people. How many of you this morning either have your Bible or a smartphone with a Bible app on it? Just raise your hand real quickly. Now, look around the room. Look how many hands are raised. Do you realize that in the 
representation of these people from Jerusalem, none of them had access to the word. They had to call upon Ezra the scribe, the one who who copied and, and translated the word. They had to call upon him to get the word so that he could read it to them so that they could hear it. It wasn't like they could run down to the corner Bible bookstore and purchase a copy. It was not available to them. Somebody had to read it for them. And what had happened over the course of the number of years uh, from which their people had been taken into exile, the reason that they were taken into exile in the first place is because no one had a hunger for the Word any longer. They departed from worshiping God. They departed from hearing God's Word. And it resulted in God saying, Okay, you don't want me? I'll let the Babylonians take back to their land. But as always, God responded to their pleas. God, forgive us. God, forgive us. God, restore us. And so he sends Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls that had been plundered. And in rebuilding the walls, bringing back the word. And bringing back the worship that was intended to take place inside those walls. People had gathered there at the water gate in great numbers because they were hungry for the Word of God. Now, I can't say that without asking the question. Are we hungry for the Word of God? I mean, really think about that question. Why have you come here this morning? Is it because you're hungry for the Word or is it because that's what you do on Sunday morning? I can tell you which it ought to be. We should always come here because we're hungry to hear the Word of God, whether in song or in in spoken word. We have to develop the same kind of hunger for the Word that these people had. And does does being really hungry for the Word mean that you're not just going to hear or read the Word on Sunday, but you're going to open it every day of the week? You're going to study it. You're going to prepare for what's coming next Sunday as you hear it preached next Sunday. You see, this is what hunger for the Word looks like. It's hungry being, being hungry for the Word mean that you'll be committed to come study it when our Wednesday evening Bible study starts again on October 2nd. Now, I don't know about any of the rest of you because this is what I do for a living. I'm, I'm kind of in the Word every day out of necessity, okay? But we need the Word. We, we sang about it this morning. Its words are like honey in our mouth. The psalmist said, I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. How did he know that? Because He had a hunger for the Word. Will you be as hungry for the Word on Tuesday or Thursday as you are on a Sunday? I heard the story of a little boy. Walked into the room where his father was and he had in his hands the family Bible that he found on the coffee table. And he noticed it sitting there a lot, but he never really knew what it was. 
And so he took the family Bible and he brought it to his dad and he says, Daddy, what is this? Dad said, it's the Bible, son. It's, it's God's book. Little boy says, well, maybe we ought to get, give it back to him since we don't use it. Out of the mouths of babes, I'm telling you. How about your Bible this morning? Your smartphone? During the week from Monday through Saturday, is it collecting dust on a table or on a shelf? Maybe, maybe what we need to do is, is put your name tags on the seat where you're sitting this morning. And, and then you can be assured not only of having, having that seat reserved for you next Sunday, but you could just leave your Bible here. And, and that way you wouldn't have to worry about forgetting it next Sunday. <laughs> of course, I'm joking, but I think that's the way a lot of us approach the Word of God. We get our fill of it, so to speak, on Sunday, and then we don't pay much attention to it the rest of the week. Another story, lady wanted to impress her preacher when he dropped by a visit. So she said to her little girl, she said, honey, go get that blessed book that mama loves so much. You're ahead of me. Little girl runs off and returns with the Sears catalog. Now, I I realize that in saying catalog, I just alienated about half of our congregation that don't even have any idea what a Sears catalog is. (laughs) But but I I hope you're hungry for the Word. Because this is literally a feast that God has set before us. These are words of life. They are life-giving words, and it'd be a shame... If we didn't just clean up our plate on the Word of God. I can tell you this. If you become a student of the Word of God, your life is fundamentally better than what it used to be before you were a student for the Word. I can promise you that. I've never heard anybody say any different. Well, I hope you're hungry because here at Trinity Faith, we plan on focusing on the Word. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, 9 and 10, the rules of the Lord are true. Righteous altogether, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. And then, as we also sang earlier this morning, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Let me just say this to you, friends. America is not going to experience revival as the people in Jerusalem did after the walls were rebuilt. America is not going to experience revival because of election results. That's not going to be the reason. We're only going to see revival when God's people want the word more than they they want money or prosperity or health care. Job, he said in the latter part of of chapter number 23, verse number 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. It was more important to him than his daily sustenance. Now, having heard that, let me just tell you very openly and very transparently, I have an addiction. I'm addicted to food. And those of you who are laughing, I can just say this too. You are as well. But just try fasting from food for 24 hours. I'm on this kick where I'm going to start fasting with regularity. 
Uh, not just for health reasons, but primarily for spiritual reasons. But you try fasting from food for 24 hours, and you will see how addicted we all are to food. Um, I've got to be careful. I don't want to get myself in trouble here. You know, when you try fasting from food, it isn't many hours, and this is me, I won't lay this at your feet, it won't be many hours till you'll find yourself looking longingly at your refrigerator. And you'll say to that refrigerator, remember the relationship that we used to have. Remember that relationship, and remember when I would throw open your doors and just indulge myself to whatever you had. Can we have that again, please? <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I've got a love affair with my refrigerator, and I guess I could say I cheat on it with many restaurants as well. But abstinence is not a choice that we often make, especially when it comes to food, and if we do, it's not for very long, but most of us can go, can't go seven hours without eating, but it's easy for us to go seven days without feeding on the Word. Something's wrong. We feed the flesh bountifully, as you can tell, but we don't feed our spirits properly. No wonder our flesh grows and our spirit shrinks up. Psalmist again said in Psalm 119 verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil, that's treasure or or riches. David was saying, you know, it's like I'm going on this daily treasure hunt and it's really not hard to find gold nuggets in the word of God if you look hard enough. That's what he's saying. I value it more than riches. Nehemiah's people were hungry for the word more than they were for food or gold or treasure. And again, keep in mind, they didn't all have copies of the word. But they had a hunger. They had a hunger for it. They, didn't, they may not have had their own copies, but they longed to hear it. And here in America today, we have many copies. But we seem content with going long periods of time without cracking it open, reading it and studying it. And that brings me to the second thing that I see here. Not only were they hunger, hungry for the Word, but their hunger for the Word was marked by hearing of the Word. Now, we were in chapter number 8, and I want, I want to share with you, beginning with verse number 2, it says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand it. And all the ears of the, and the ears of all the people, excuse me, were attentive to the book of the law. And then he goes through a list of the people who stood beside him as he was reading, and I'm not going to share those because I can't pronounce the names. But verse 5 says, Then Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, 
amen, amen, lifting up their hands. Not only were they hungry, but they were anxious to hear it. Now, now listen to me carefully. They, they weren't time conscious. They, they weren't thinking about lunch while the word was being spoken. It says that he started in the morning and he continued until midday. That's five or six hours, day after day, they practiced listening to Ezra and hearing what Ezra was reading from the law. Can I just say to you, to you that we're not going to have real revival in our heart until we get over our clock watching. And what I mean by that, don't misunderstand me, I, I don't think a church service should drag on unnecessarily. But we shouldn't rush it either. We shouldn't quench the Spirit of God when He begins to move in our midst because of the clock. Some of you here will be able to resonate with what I'm getting ready to share. Back in the days when Brenda and I were youth pastors, we had church on Sunday morning and Sunday evening back in those days. And then we had youth service on Monday evening, and we had midweek service on Wednesday. And what I want to share with you is this. Even in youth service on Monday evenings, we weren't time conscious. Some of you can remember Sunday evening altar services where people just hung around the altars praying. I can remember several times during the course of my upbringing not leaving church until almost midnight. I remember a particular revival that came to our youth group. And those kids began praying and we'd have 30 or 40 kids. And I remember several times we prayed until 3 o'clock in the morning. On Tuesday morning. We had youth sponsors. I was a farmer. We had responsibilities the next morning. But we weren't time conscious because we wanted to experience the presence and the power of Jesus. Now, as I said, we need to be sensitive to the Lord's leading as well as t- to the attention span of our people. I, I was taught this. I need to finish before the congregation finishes. You understand what I mean? Point is, we need to grow in our attention spans, especially when God offers us the riches of his word. You know, I'm thankful for this church because you are an attentive bunch of people. I'm thankful we don't have a clock back on the wall. And what I'm saying is, I never have gotten a complaint, even on those rare, rare occasions, Jeremy, when I preach too long. No one's ever said anything. You're you're attentive. You have a hunger. And, And I hear that not... I, I see that not just from what I see, but when we have speakers come in, they're always, they will always tell me, man, your congregation, they just, they paid attention. They were locked in. You, you, need, to, you need to pat yourself on the back for that. And, and I will say this, I, I really do try not to be long-winded or take advantage of your time. I, I, I would prefer to finish before you do. But my goal With every service, no matter whether it's this church or any church that I've ever preached in, is to leave the congregation wanting more. Are you with me? 
I want to leave them with them wanting more. So when we do want more and the Lord leads us to continue, we shouldn't be time conscious. We should allow him to move as he sees fit. Someone once told a preacher, you know what? And this is an oil and gas area here, so you'll understand. He said, if you can't strike oil in 20 minutes, quit being boring. Quit boring. That's pretty good. I heard about a little boy that went to a big church for the first time, and this, that church was much like ours. They offered children's church, and so this little boy had primarily grown up in children's church, but the Sunday came when they were going to have everybody together, and so he was in big church. That's what he called it. And he had a lot of questions about everything that he saw in big church. He'd look at his dad, and he'd say, Dad, what does that mean? And you know, the choir had sang, and he said, Dad, what does that mean? And when the ushers came forward to take the offering again, he'd ask, Dad, what does that mean? When his pastor opened the Bible and began to preach, Dad, what does that mean? And then after the preacher had been preaching for a while, he, he saw the preacher take off his watch and lay it on the pulpit. He said, Dad, what does that mean? His dad said, that doesn't mean nothing at all. <laughs> you, you, you know... Nehemiah's people actually heard the word as it was being read. They were attentive to it. And my question in regard to this particular point is, why come to church if you're not coming to listen to the word? Surely you can find something that's more interesting if your goal is not to come to hear the word of God. Many of us who are parents, we try to, we try to teach our kids that when they're in big church, they're here to listen. Well, guess what, Mom and Dad? So are you. You're here to listen to God's Word. Church is a place not just to color a pretty picture to pass the time, as we often do in children's church, but to show reverence to God and to His Word. And that brings me to number three. Their hearing of the Word was marked by an honor for the Word. We read verses 5 and 6. And if you'll recall those words, it says... They said, amen. They said, amen. Now, when we say amen, we do it as a means of of honoring or agreeing with the word of God. And, And when I hear people say amen, it helps me out too. Because when a preacher hears someone say amen, that's like saying sick them to a dog. You know? Uh, But then it says they lifted up their hands. Do we? And if not, why not? Well, most of the time when I've asked that question in different churches, I'll hear things from people and they'll say, well, I don't want to be associated as being a fanatic. Some holy ruler. And I can understand that. But more importantly, does... Do we want to be associated with God in the way that the Bible says we are to be associated with God? Now, now hear me on this. I suggest that if you want to differentiate yourself from the holy rollers, then you don't have to do it the way they do it, but neither should you let the devil steal from you what God wants to give you. If you feel the Spirit of God moving in your heart and life, don't quench the Spirit. So if you won't raise your hands, how do you respond when you feel the Spirit? You say, well, 
It's too easy for people to get carried away. Believe me, I understand that too. But I will say this. It's easier to cool down a fanatic than it is to warm up a corpse. That's good. That's good. We here at Trinity Faith, we believe in the moving of the Spirit of God. And the greatest danger that we face is not becoming a bunch of fanatics. It's being so cold and so indifferent that we don't get excited about the Word of God when we hear it any longer. The Bible instructs us in many places throughout the words, throughout the Word, about lifting up holy hands to God. Is God worth that effort for you? Is he worth the effort of an amen? My Bible says that there's going to be shouting and raising of hands in heaven. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 63, 4, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Now I'm guessing that if when Jesus returns in the clouds of glory... According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse number 13, he's going to descend from heaven with a shout. With a shout. He's going to return in the clouds of glory with a shout. And we probably ought to get used to shouting along with him. Now, don't get me wrong. We, we shouldn't come to church to put on a show, and we shouldn't ever try to prime the pump, friends. But if your pump starts flowing as it's moved by the Spirit of God, then let it run over. Let it run over. We have not even begun to see all that God wants to do in any of our lives. But if we'll quit being so self-conscious and become more God-conscious... We might see God do some amazing things individually and collectively as a church. And, and please, if you're, if you're not comfortable doing these things that I'm talking about, please don't do them for my sake. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm trying to teach a principle here. And I know things that are, are to be done decently and things are to be done in order. But the Bible is pretty clear that God doesn't expect us to sit in church like cigar store wooden Indians. Is God worth the effort of an amen? Is he, is he worth the effort of a holy grunt? Look at the end of the verse. It says, they worshiped God with their faces to the ground. Wow. Is God worth the effort of coming forward and bowing your face toward the ground at an old-fashioned altar. Just a question for you to think about. Fourthly, got to get this thing going. Fourthly, their hunger was marked by their handling of the Word. How did they handle the Word? Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Again, a list of guys who had weird names. Helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. It's called preaching. It wasn't enough for them to just read the word. Somebody had to explain it to them. And that's what we preachers are assigned to do. 
We, we, we don't just need people to, to stand and give a talk. It's interesting. I've, when I stand at the doors after church is over and you people are coming by and I'm greeting you, a lot of times we have strangers that are new to the church experience. And they'll walk up to me and they'll shake my hand and they'll say, we enjoyed your talk. Or that was a nice speech. I understand that unchurched people don't know what to say sometimes, but friends, we need sermons that preach the truth of God's Word. We need sermons that call sin, sin. We need sermons that tell that hell is hot and hell is to be avoided and heaven is to be gained. Amen? It doesn't matter how brilliant you already figured this out. It doesn't matter how brilliant the orator is or how clever the outline or how touching the poem. If it's not rooted in the Word of God, it's not exposing the power of the Word. And if it doesn't do that, it's worthless. Now, I preach messages and I utilize an outline that I've made. As I told the Sunday school class this morning, I have literally hundreds of outlines, sermon outlines that I've prepared lining the shelves of my bookcase in my office. Why do I use an outline? I'll tell you what I told them. Trust me when I tell you, you don't want me to preach without an outline. I'm just telling you. You don't want that. Without it, I'd get to going down so many rabbit trails, you'd be here till 1.30 every Sunday. So thank God for outlines, amen? Yeah, I see you heard me there. But, but here's what I'm saying. And I know I'm kind of rambling this morning, but I'm not impressed by preachers who will stand and read one verse from the Bible and then say, look at me. They bring their message without going back to the Word at all. That doesn't impress me. I mean, do they think that what they have to give is more important than what God has to give to us? You see, I, I, I believe that the finest form of preaching is what I en- try and endeavor to do, and it's called expository preaching. It's taking the Word, explaining the Word, illustrating the Word, and applying the Word to the everyday lives of the people who are here to hear it. And I just happen to believe that there's a famine in the land for that kind of preaching. That's the kind of preaching that builds great followers of Jesus. And great followers of Jesus build great churches for Jesus. Now let me add that great preaching is preaching that keeps the message simple. You shouldn't have to have a PhD to understand what a preacher is saying. The mysteries of the Word of God, the Bible tells us, is revealed to babes in the faith. My goodness, if God can do that to those who come to Christ like a little child, and and, and Jesus tells us, that's the way you have to come to me, with the faith of a little child. What's a little child faith look like? Well, how many of you have ever taken your grandkid and tossed him up in the air about three feet and then caught him? What's he say when you catch him? Do it again. You know why? Because they have faith and confidence that when you toss them into the air, you're going to catch them again. And some of you younger parents are going, "Ah." come on now. 
faith of a little child. You tell them that God's going to hear them, God loves them, God's going to answer their prayers, and they just believe it. Sometimes we get so educated, we're educated beyond our intelligence. Simple faith. Simple faith, simple preaching. All of that say when you hear one of these high-minded professors preach, don't kid yourself. Somebody said it this way, just because the river's muddy doesn't mean that it's deep, you know? If you can't understand what they're saying, it doesn't mean that they're deep, too deep to understand. It just means that they're trying to impress you. And I certainly don't want to impress anybody. I just want to preach the Word. Great preacher John R. Rice said it this way, put the jelly on the bottom shelf where the smallest soul can reach it. I like that. But here again, back to verse number 7. There are 13 men that are listed there. They're the priests. And they were leaders who explained the word in detail, even one-on-one as it was needed, so that in verse 8 it tells us that the people understood the reading. Do you know what that's called today? That's called discipleship. We are to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Do you know how the disciples became Jesus' disciples? They followed him, they listened to him, and they learned of him. And then they passed on to those who followed them and made them disciples. That's what we're to do. We're to disciple people. And unfortunately, when I, when I grew up in church, we had this thing called Sunday school, and that's where I primarily learned the Word of God. And, and we still have that in our adult department. We have a, another Sunday school class back here doing basics, and, you know, but we, by and large, have moved, we and a lot of churches have moved away from Sunday school hour where the primary purpose was discipling. Well, that's all well and good if you have another means to do it. Because that doesn't negate the need for being discipled. Let me just say this to you, friends. You are being discipled in something. It needs to be the Word of God. There are a lot of churches out there that are preaching stuff and doing it in the name of God and calling it the Word that is not the Word of God. And they're making disciples of people whose lives are now grounded on something that was not the Word of God. And and you know what happens after a time? That becomes a movement. And when it becomes a movement, it gains momentum. And when it gains momentum, it gathers other followers. That kind of sounds like the church ought to be, doesn't it? But if we're discipling in the Word will gain followers whose lives are founded in the Word. Discipleship. I have to close. Lastly and probably most importantly, their hunger for the Word was marked by their heeding of the Word. Again, verse, starting with verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, 
This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hallelujah. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The goal of the Bible, friends, is to bring life transformation. Changing us from what we have been to what God has created us to be. It's not the hearing of the Word that transforms lives, and it's not just understanding it that transforms lives. It's obeying it that will transform your life. The Apostle James said as much. James chapter 1, verse number 22, he said, Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And there it is again. It's not about the wall. It's about the Word and the worship. The transformation of these people that Nehemiah was leading, it began with weeping, verse 9 told us. You know why they were weeping? Because the Word made them recognize their sinfulness. They felt convicted by their sin. They they realized as a result of what they heard from the the words of the law that they were now separated from God and it drove them to weeping. Fortunately, Nehemiah and Ezra, they had wisdom and they stepped in to encourage those who were weeping that there was hope, that there was help in the Lord. All they needed to do was confess and repent and return to God. And they would find that the joy of the Lord would strengthen them, would sustain them, would uphold them with His strong hand. You see, friends, oh boy. I want you to listen carefully. When people come and they hear the Word preached and the Holy Spirit brings conviction to their lives... That's another way of saying, well, as a result of what they heard, they feel guilty about their lives, right? God uses that guilt to help people to come to repentance. In other words, I've been doing this and this and this, and now I hear in the Word that what I've been doing has been doing it wrong, so I need to turn and go the other way, and my life will get better, right? But here's what happens a lot of times. You get saved, you start following Jesus, and the old devil will say, well, hey, you and I both know you're still guilty. And we start beating ourselves up, even though we've been forgiven of a particular sin, we still carry the guilt of that sin, and we carry it with us, and we let it sap our victory, and we walk around like we've been baptized in dill pickle juice, That is not guilt from God. 
That is not conviction of the Holy Spirit. That is the devil trying to make you doubt that what God said he would do if you would confess your sin was a lie. When you confessed your sin and repented of your sin and Jesus forgave you of your sin, that sin is gone. It's gone. And there is no need of you carrying it around like a sack of weight over your shoulder. The joy of the Lord. Where does my joy in the Lord come from? Knowing that my sins are forgiven. They're they're tossed as far as the east is from the west, never to be held against me again. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. Don't ever confuse those two kinds of guilt. If hearing the word causes you to feel guilty, that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Anything other than that is the accuser of the brethren, the devil, trying to make you doubt what God has promised. Are we clear on that? I just had to cover that. You see, when the Holy Spirit of God convicts us, that's the Spirit of God wanting to bring us down in order to lift us higher than ever before. We have, to, we have to recognize our sinfulness. We have to recognize our separation from God. And I've heard people that say, man, your preaching made me mad today. Well, I hope it did. Because if it made you mad, my goal is for it to make you sad so that you can get glad. Amen? Do not be grieved, verse 10 says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is nothing sweeter than the joy of the Lord. There's nothing more appealing to the world than to enter into a church building where the joy of the Lord is present. (laughs) I feel sorry for sad sacks. They come to church and sit staring at the floor. They've come determined not to laugh, not to smile, not to hint of any type of enjoyment or satisfaction in the service. Let me tell you something, friends. Those kind of people may not like it around here because we're going to enjoy the Lord. We're going to enjoy His goodness. We're going to celebrate what he's done in our lives. And we're going to be, make it so enjoyable that when people come in here and see that joy, they will want what we have. What do we have? We have a life that's been changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let me quickly close. Where'd it go? Verses 12 through 17. All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make those booths 
as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on, it, on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, that's Joshua as we know, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. They'd not been doing this for all of those years. And on this day, verse 17 closes by saying, on that day they had great rejoicing. What's happening here? Let me quickly explain it. It's a restoration of what we know to be the Feast of Tabernacles, or as they called it in the Old Testament, the Feast of Booths. In Bible days, God's people were commanded to have a festival once a year in the seventh month and go away from their homes to what they called a brush arbor. A brush arbor. And there they were to camp out in these booths made from these materials that we listed. And it was to be a festive atmosphere. It was a recognition of the fact that they were once permanently encamped in slavery in Egypt, but Moses had brought them out of slavery. It was a memorial of where God had brought them from to where they now were. Now think about that. Having a festival, a blowout, a celebration. Commemorating where God had brought them from to where they now were. They're restoring this feast that had not been celebrated since the days of Joshua. And I can almost imagine in my mind's eye, they're, they're gathering sticks to build these booths with. And, and I can imagine the enemies, like Sanballat, that we encountered back when they began re- trying to rebuild the wall. Sanballat was the guy and two of his buddies that came along and said, it can't be done. Why are you doing it? Why are you wasting your time? I can almost imagine those enemies like Sanballat saying, what are you doing this for? And they would say, we're making booze. Well, why are you making booze? You know what their answer was? Because God said to. Because God said to. You know what that's called? It's called revival. Doing what God has said. Celebrating where God has brought us from to where we are now at. Remembering that what he tells us to do, he intends for us to obey. Mourning leads to joy. Joy leads to obedience. And obedience leads to revival. Would you bow with me, please? Worship team, would you come? It's not about the wall, friends. It's about the Word of God. And it's about worshiping God. Those two things. Jacob, I don't even know what we're doing for worship. What are we doing? Our closing. Okay. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Lord Jesus, too often we don't celebrate where you've brought us from to where we are now. We don't celebrate the fact that you've taken lives that were ruined and broken 
being shattered day by day, succumbing to the pressures of the world, cares of the world. And Lord, you found us in that condition. You made us aware of what got us there. We saw the error of our ways. We confessed our sin. We repented. And you restored us. You restored us, Jesus. So often we lose sight of the fact that if not for you, we'd still be in that lost situation. We'd still be lost and undone. As Isaiah said, without God, there's his son. And so Jesus, I'm praying that Trinity Faith Church would become a church that week after week, Sunday after Sunday, Monday through Saturday, becomes a church that celebrates where you brought us from to where we now are in our spiritual walk. God, I'm praying that as a result of that, we would become more and more obedient to your word. And even more importantly, as we prepare ourselves for someday spending eternity with you in heaven, that we would become people whose lives are instruments of worship. Worshiping you when we come together collectively on Sunday. Worshiping you in the way that we live our lives at home. Our kids worshiping you in the way that they live their lives and conduct themselves at school. Worshiping you in the way that we go about our daily tasks at our job. Being good employees, being good bosses. All because, Jesus, you have transformed us and changed us. Brought us from where we were to where we now are. We thank you for that, Jesus.